ladies and gentlemen, welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of one of the largest and oldest wrestling families on the planet. The Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. Through 93 years and four generations. The Stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee Stud. The Tennessee Stud. You will learn that name. You will remember it. And now, the stud is here. Please welcome the creator of the popular 605 podcast and the president of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network, your co-host, the great Ryan Last. Hello again, friends. And welcome back for another edition of Ron Fuller's Studcast. I am the great Brian Last, and I'm very happy to be with you along for the ride as the Tennessee Stud takes us back through wrestling history, exploring his personal journey throughout the wrestling business, as well as the history of the business in general. And today, we've got a really good one for you. And before we get there, let me introduce the man of the hour, the host of the Studcast, the Tennessee Stud himself, Ron Fuller. Ron we got a really big one this week, taking us out of America, taking us to Australia. Yes, and uh, I've really been looking forward to this. Uh, we're going to make two journeys to Australia. This is the first. Uh, it'll be a short-lived journey, not very long, but there's a reason for going there. And and it's an opportunity to for me as a young guy to, to get my feet wet outside the country. I mean, I'm used to the Bahamas. I'm, uh, I'm going to get used to San Juan and Puerto Rico, but, uh, this is a long trip, daddy. I mean, this is halfway around the globe and, uh, it's an experience for a 23 year old guy that, uh, is in his first year in the business. And uh, there's a lot to see and do and a lot to learn about, uh, that country as so far as the sport of wrestling is concerned. And, I can't wait. Got the old horse saddled up, and I'm ready to roll, man. And there's so much to talk about, especially I want to hear more about this journey. <laughs> How long did it take in 1971 to get to Australia? We'll get there in a moment. I think we should point out right here at the top of the show, though, Ron, the reaction has been overwhelming to the most recent Super Studcast, Super Studcast number five with WWE Hall of Famer Bullet Bob Armstrong at patreon.com slash studcast and especially at tnstud.com. Ron, anything you want to say at the top of the show about Super Studcast number five? Just, uh, I think you kind of covered it there. I mean, it's just been a tremendous response to it. Uh, I've really loved it myself. Uh, I really love that broadcast. And and I have been with Bob Armstrong since we recorded it. I have seen him in person. And he said he never had such a good time. He said, Ron, I could do another one of those, maybe two more of those. He goes, I didn't get to do all my stories. He said, you know, I really did. He said, I didn't realize how many stories I had. And he said, uh, Brian did such a great job of asking me questions. He said, he just took me places. He said, I, it was like for him, he said, it was kind of like going back in time. And, uh, you know, he says, I hadn't, I hadn't had that experience in a long time. He said, he was really, uh, he was really hammering me. He said, I want to do another one. So, you know, at some point he has so much information in him 
and so much history behind him. And I just, I heard so many stories there that I'd never heard him tell me before, and I didn't know. So, you know, uh, down the road, we may do another one of those with Bob Armstrong. Uh, I just really enjoyed it, and he really had a great time as well. In fact, his wife even said, Ron, she said, and he wasn't there. She said, Ron, you know, Bob went, he just, when he got off, he was just like so fired up. He said, wow, I just loved that. I really had a great time. So, oh, that's cool. uh, and I was really glad to hear that. Uh, you know, he's got so much information in him and he's had such a phenomenal career. He's one of those guys probably you could do three or four programs with like that. Obviously, he brought up time traveling and we're going to do a little bit of that right now. Let's go back to 1971. Where are you exactly, Ron, before we begin this story here? I'm in, obviously, I'm living in Tampa, and I'm working every night. Um, I'm working regularly. I'm working with some pretty decent guys. Uh, I've been in the, involved in a couple of programs as a young guy now. I'm six months, uh, probably eight months in in this time frame. And I've got the opportunity to work with some top guys, and I'm really feeling my oats as a young guy. I think, you know, I'm really headed somewhere. And my dad, let's begin all of this and give you the background for this. This is probably May of 1971, which is the fall of the year in Australia. And my dad's really developing a relationship with Jim Barnett. Uh, I have yet to meet Jim Barnett at this point. I just hear Dad talk about Barnett. Barnett's pretty much always in Australia, obviously. He's been there for a little while at this point. He's established a great company there. He has really gotten on all the television stations and all the major markets. He's done exactly what every promoter with every territory does, except he doesn't have a territory. He's got a country. And it's a sizable country, uh, beautiful cities, a growing population there in Australia, a vibrant economy. He's, he's really in a, in a sweet spot there. And Dad and he are having these conversations, and Dad calls me up kind of out of the blue, and he says, how would you like to go to Australia? And I was like, wow, how long are you talking about? You know, and he says, uh, uh, maybe for a month, it's going to depend on how my talks go with Jim Barnett. So I had the feeling off right off the bat that he's having discussions with Barnett somehow to become some type of partner, maybe with Jim Barnett. Uh, Jim Barnett, uh, for those people out there that don't know much about Jim Barnett, Jim Barnett is one of the most pivotal characters in the sport of wrestling all the way back into the 40s, maybe even beyond the 40s, maybe even into the 30s. Uh, Jim Barnett uh, really develops. He's one of those guys. I think he has. In, he's involved with the Dumont Network. The Dumont Network is back in the early 50s. Uh, when TV is just getting started, and he's on a network that kind of operates out of Chicago and all of the north, northeast and north central part of America, and he's cre he's creating a territory that's that's massive, and and he he does tremendous business. Uh, one of the stories I love about Jim Barnett is. He has this, he's in the amphitheater. He he works in the amphitheater, I think it's called in Chicago back in those times. And there's a big stage there, like in a lot of big buildings. 
and the big curtain across that stage. And Jim Barnett never drove a car. He always had a limo take him everywhere. He had a full-time limo and a full-time driver. So he comes to one of the towns. I can't remember who told me this story, but they actually saw him. He comes in the back. The matches are started. They're about halfway through the evening. He comes in the back door, the amphitheater. He goes to the big curtain there. And this guy standing by the curtain, he's kind of watching out the curtain, pulls the curtain back so he can see the match. And Jim comes up and stands there and reaches and gets the curtain and he pulls it back and he looks at the crowd. He don't watch the match at all. The guy says he starts watching. He looks at the top of the building. He looks at the, all the way around, tries to get a, a 360-degree view of how many bodies he has in there. And he goes... Oh, my God, he goes, look, he's another sellout. Might as well go home. <laughs> and he turns around and goes back and goes out the back door and gets in his limo, and they drive away. So, I mean, you know, that's that's kind of the type of guy Jim Barnett was. I mean, he was a brilliant guy. He had tremendous connections with the powerful and influential people. Uh, I used to visit his 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 apartment, his condo in in Atlanta, and he had the pictures on the wall of all of the all of the uh, ceremonies, the presidential ceremonies in which they they are elected, and uh, and you have to be invited. And not only did he go, but he would show me. He go, Ronald. He goes, this is this is Dwight Eisenhower. And he goes, look, right there, there I am, you know. <laughs> and then you go to the next one, uh, look, uh, Ronald, this is Ronald Reagan. You know, he would start with whoever it was. He even had been to so many inaugurations of presidents. It just blew my mind. And, and he was not just there in the crowd somewhere. He's behind the president. You, he, In every shot, he's within the first 10 rows behind the president that's being inaugurated. So he is really in, and he's now gotten tired, probably knowing Jim, he got just a little bit tired, and well, he's sellouts, and I want to do something different. I can hear him almost saying, I, I want to go to my own country. There's a, oh, Australia, I can see him pulling out a globe or pulling out his, his some type of map and saying, I, I want to see this country right here. So he goes and establishes his himself in Australia. Obviously, he has no competition. He's the only one there. He ties up televisions. He ties up arenas. He does the same things that every promoter uh, that owns a territory does uh, to, in order to be successful. And he probably takes it beyond what most do because he's just a really brilliant guy. So I got a feeling my dad's having these discussions with Jim. And Jim, my dad is really in a good sweet spot here, too, because he he's riding a bunch of success. He's had phenomenal success in Georgia in the 60s. Uh, prior to that, he did tremendously in Memphis and then and, and, and kind of got that kicked off to become the, the, the super town that it is. Uh, he done. He's had the success in in Arizona. He's had success on the Gulf Coast. Uh, so he has a pretty decent reputation, and he's very 
he promoters like to talk to him. I, I notice that when I'm a young guy and I go somewhere and we sit down and we're talking to Eddie Graham or we may be talking to whoever it could be, the Fields brothers, uh, Nick Goulas, uh, Jim Crockett, uh, out of, in, in, out of uh, Charlotte, you know, and all of those guys just want to milk his brain. They want to milk him for ideas because his mindset is really good. Uh, he's a very good very good uh, handling uh, handling marketing of the product. He's a great marketer for wrestling, and he he knows how to advertise. And he spends a lot of money, and that helped him be successful. A lot of wrestling promoters miss that. They don't want to spend a lot of money to advertise their product, thinking that they don't need to. But that's a big mistake for them because. You know, you got to let them know that you're there. If they don't know you're there, they're not going to come and see you. And you're always looking for that new person. You're looking for those new fans that have not had access to the product before. So he is always good at building that, creating those new fans. So I think Jim may be, by this point in Australia, he's not tired of Australia He's not bored with it like he is America, like he was with Chicago and Indianapolis and Detroit and all the big cities that he was operating. Uh, that just got to be old hat, like the guy, like the story is when he pulls the curtain back. It's like, oh, God, another sellout. Might as well go home. Well, that says to me he's pretty bored with these sellouts. So he, he runs off to another part of the world and starts his own business there. And so dad says, do you want to go? And I say, absolutely. <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, who, who would turn down that opportunity except for my brother? My brother would have turned it down because he doesn't want to leave the country. But I'm young and I want to see other places and I want to see other talent. So I'm more than ready to make this trip. And so he sets it up and, and in a short time frame. I don't have a long time to get ready for it. I say, when are you talking about doing this? And he says, well, within the next two weeks, maybe. So he's discussing with Jim about uh, him coming. And then I think he brings up to Jim, you know, well, I, my son is wrestling in Florida. And I'd like to see if, 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 if he could come and have an opportunity to wrestle some outside the country and to see what is there. I think my dad also had some respect for me as a young guy. He knew I was a grinder and he knew I wanted to be, be somebody and I wanted to own my own companies and all that. And I think he kind of says to himself, you know, this is an opportunity to get the kid in there and teach him and let him see other operations and see what goes on in other parts of the world. So that becomes the deal of, uh, Pretty quickly, within probably a week of the time that we have the discussion, he calls me back and he says, uh, "You're booked." But I have a wife and a and a and a three month old son, so you know I want him to go. You know, and my wife obviously wants to go. She says, "Gosh, I would love to go to Australia." So I call him back and I say, "Can you talk to Jim and see if he'll 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 give a ticket for my wife and I need to bring the baby." You know, so because we don't know exactly how long I'm going to be there, maybe for a little bit of time. It could be knowing dad, this one month potential could turn out to be five months. So I'm just wary of it. And I go, well, let's try to get everybody, take them with me. So 
they send the tickets and and we're ready to roll. Uh, we're so late in the program that when we start to leave, we're living, we're, we're flying out of Atlanta and we leave Atlanta. We go to LA and I don't, they have not gotten my visa yet. So I'm not going to be able to go with, with, with dad's on the plane and my wife's on the plane, my son's on there. I'm not going to be able to take the same plane that they're on. I'm going to have to fly to L.A. Then I've got to get up early on the next morning. They're flying out. They go on because their tickets are there and they can't wait. So they fly out and they go all in, all the way to Australia out of uh, out of L.A. I've got to catch a plane early in the morning. I fly to San Francisco uh, to get my visa. And obviously, this is probably Jim Barnett's pull again. Uh, you know, these visas are pretty difficult to set up and then to get one last minute, you just can't hardly get that done. And somehow he pulls the strings. He says, you're going to have to be a flight will be a day later than everybody else. They're all coming in, but you're going to have to fly to San Francisco. You're going to have to fly back to LA, spend the night. The next morning you'll fly out. Uh, and then I'm going to fly from LA uh, the day that I leave, going to Hawaii. That's about a four-hour flight. Uh, they, obviously, they got the jets. I mean, it's 1971. They're just about to come out with a 747. Uh, and it may be that there are a few 747s flying at that point. But I don't get on a 70, 747 going or coming back from this trip. Uh but, uh, they, you know, planes are pretty decent. Jets are pretty good uh, at this point. Uh, fly into Hawaii. Uh, I get off. I get. I have a two-hour layover, and I get on a plane from, from Hawaii that's going to Sydney, from Hawaii to Sydney. Uh, it's uh, 14 hours from Hawaii to Sydney. It's so long that at this point, there's very few planes capable of flying that distance without refueling. So this plane is going to stop about halfway to Sydney in the middle of the Pacific at a little island called New Caledonia. It's night. Uh, now, you got to bear in mind, when you fly internationally like this, uh, your your time zones, you're, you're getting behind in time zones. Things is changing so fast. You're, we're going to go across the international timeline. Uh, and when that happens, and that's going to happen between Hawaii and Sydney, uh, actually it's going to be just a little east of of Australia is you have New Zealand and just east of New Zealand, that's on that time, that international date, dateline time in which you go, you're not just changing time zones, but you're going to actually go from us from a Tuesday. You're going to back up to Monday again. You're going to get another Monday. You've already had a Monday and it turned into Tuesday. Let's say I left on a Tuesday. When I get to Sydney, it's going to be Monday. It's going to be like, wow, and it's going to be so many time zones later that your body is just totally disact, dis is disoriented. Is, the, is, the, is this daytime? Is it nighttime? Uh, you know, your, your, your 
you're probably 12 time zones different than what you left at and you're a day different. I mean, you, you got to kind of sit and figure out where am I and where, what day is this? And, uh, it's really strange. I get off the plane and I've been booked. I'm going to wrestle in Sydney. I get off the plane. I have been on a plane now. And that day I started in LA or that night I started in LA and I fly, fly in the night. I fly into the next morning. When this plane lands in New Caledonia out there in the Pacific, it's early in the morning and I get off the plane. Everybody gets off. You want to stretch your legs. You've been on there quite a while. Uh, I get off and I look around and my very first thought is King Kong. I mean, that island to me was, it looked exactly like the island that they did King Kong on. I mean, it's got those gigantic uh, cliffs that go up 5,000 feet, it looks like, with just covered with uh, all this foliage and, and vegetation and it's a it's it's a striking place. It's 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 kind of scary. I mean, it gives me a little like, whoa, this is creepy. Uh, and and it, it turned out to be a place that they stopped back during those days when you made that trip to Australia from Hawaii. Almost everybody stopped in New Caledonia. I'm not sure why. Never see. There's no town. You never see anything. You obviously you're just going to be there long enough for them to refuel. So uh, you, they have a little restaurant in the airport. That's all there is there. There's nothing but the airport there. You don't see a town. You don't see any city. You don't see any people. You just with the same people. You go into the hangout in the airport. You maybe have a little something to eat. Uh, you go out and view the cliffs and the, and the the exterior and what the islands all about and what it looks like, and then you're right back on that airplane and you're off to Sydney. Long, long flight. I'm, I'm saying 14 hours from Hawaii. Uh, at Hawaii's eight hours, a good eight hours of flying time. This doesn't include your being down and, and you're changing planes and all that type of stuff. Just actual flying. You're talking about 22 hours of airtime to get from Atlanta to to the halfway around the world to Australia, and you go from obviously the northern hemisphere to the southern hemisphere, which changes everything too. People don't really think much about it, but there's a dramatic change in 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 the stars in the sky. Once you're down there in Australia and you're out of those cities and in the outback, you see stars. They're just brilliant. Uh, but you don't see, you're looking for your Big Dipper and you're looking for these constellations that we have in the Northern Hemisphere and they're not there. You, you got the Southern Cross and they've got all these different constellations down there. Uh, that part of it's kind of odd too. You have to get used to that. And you know, I don't know if you ever heard the old people talk about when you flush the toilet here, it goes clockwise. When you're in Australia, you flush the toilet and it goes counterclockwise. It flushes the wrong way, right? I mean, it's like few little things like that just make this whole trip and this whole experience of going from one side of the world uh, halfway around the world to another totally different. And then Australia is so different in 71 uh, as to where it is now. It's a totally different country now, I'm sure. Uh, even between 71 and 73, when I go back again, I'm going to see all kinds of changes in that country. It's really a developing nation. 
But it's a real experience in so many different ways to make a trip like that and uh, end up in a place that's so different and so foreign to you. Uh, talking, just being able to communicate is it's unbelievable. Uh, I've got this Southern accent being a Southern boy and, and I can't understand them. I, I get in the cab and I, I want to go to whatever hotel it is. And I, I asked for the hotel and, you know, can you take me to such and such? And, and he goes, mate, what, what, what'd you say, mate? And I said, uh, take me to the Melbourne, the Melbourne palace, you know, whatever it is, maybe it's in Melbourne. And, and he'll go, uh, mate, uh, the, can you say that again? And I say, the Melbourne Palace. Uh, the, wait, the, the palace, I got the palace, mate, but the, what was the first word? It's Melbourne, Melbourne. I mean, it's like, and, and I was the same way with them. I couldn't understand that. I could not get used to that, that Aussie accent. It was very, very difficult. Sometimes I actually thought they weren't speaking English. I go, wait a minute. Yeah, I didn't get one word out of that sentence that he said. But <laughs> it's like, so it's a real experience when you when you take a trip like that. What was the value of the American dollar there? It was the American dollar was was strong. It was strong in Australia. In fact, uh, I think I went there and and uh, they were going to pay me like uh, uh, at this point about three hundred and fifty dollars a week. That was and I I was smart enough to ask, is that American or Australian? Because there was a difference of about twenty percent to to twenty to thirty percent in value, the American dollar was that, that much more valuable than the Aussie dollar. So I was able to get that American dollar, which was good. I end up not working there near as much as I anticipated or that I wanted to, and I think that's because Jim kind of. Because Dad was coming and he and he wanted to bring me, he he said, you know, yeah, we'll try to get him on some cards, and and he managed to get me on my first card. Like I was saying, I get to Sydney now. I've been traveling basically for two days to get there. I get off the plane and they're waiting. They push me. This is Barnett again. He has such clout there that you don't go through customs if you're a wrestler like a normal person does. You don't stand in the line, open your bags, do the normal routine to go through customs when you change countries. But there, if you're a wrestler, they just come and they, they just point you out and, and say, come here, they give you, you know, like, come on over here. You walk over there and they just push you right through. You're just right out. I spent probably five minutes in customs. It was like, you know, I expected it's going to take an hour or more. And somebody just came and got me right away, whisked me off to the side. Boom, I was right out. They put me in a car. They took me to the building. And I put my wrestling gear on. I, I was wrestling. And 40 minutes after I seemed like 40 minutes within an hour after I landed, it seemed like I was in the ring. It's like, gosh almighty, this is. And, and now it's like, in my mind, it's it's like daytime and it's night there and it's it's confusing and it really I learned after I'm going to make trips to Japan and to other countries and that are great distances away how difficult it is to get acclimated when you make these long trips as to what day it is and what time it is and uh, all of that is really really difficult. 
We will continue to get acclimated right here on the Studcast after this short break with a few words about the Super Studcast. We mentioned it earlier. Here's a little more about this special program. Ron Fuller, the Tennessee stud, gets it done every week on his Studcast, documenting the history of wrestling. But once a month, the stud drops the Super Studcast. It's a three-hour deep dive into the places, personalities, and experiences that Ron Fuller's been a part of since his family began in the wrestling business almost 100 years ago. If you miss a Super Studcast, the stud has carefully chosen his subjects and topics to cover a fabulous range of history with remarkable stories from America's greatest storyteller. And in the last two, fantastic revelations from the live guests themselves. He set the tone and place from the beginning with the beloved and admired Andre the Giant in Super Studcast number one. Everybody in the dressing room goes silent. No one's ever seen him before. And they're all astounded. There's this quiet. And everybody's looking at each other like, is this guy for real? Who is that? So I reach to shake his hand. I can't reach across his palm. His hand is so huge that my hand disappears in there like a child's hand. Then, with hours of laughs, he introduced us to one of the craziest of all time, Scary Ron Wright in Super Studcast number two. I'm going to get me somebody here in this territory before I leave. So the last night that he's there, it's a Saturday night, and there's a battle royal. It's in Lakeland, Florida. He gets his chisel out, and he files her down as usual, and he goes to everybody, boys, tonight's my night. I'm going to get me somebody tonight, me and my chisel. He captivated us by describing one of the most dangerous places on earth to wrestle in number three's Caribbean chaos. Then the stud switched gears entirely by highlighting live guests for the first time in Super Studcast number four, when his famous brother, Robert Fuller, a.k.a. Colonel Parker, a.k.a. Tennessee Lee, enthralled us with his hilarity and, at times, hostile attitude. Uh, first, I want to clear up where my brother's concerned and Jimmy Golden. We are relatives, but that's as far as it goes. That Ron, I guess he ran into some problems in his life with his knees and with his other ailments and this and that. I ain't going to make excuses for him, really, because he's making a real idiot himself but by that he's taking on an attitude where he cares for nothing but himself and jimmy it's been obvious that that's his attitude right down the line anyway if it works out for jimmy it's fine and in super studcast number five it's built around the hall of famer and personal friend of the stud for almost 50 years the bullet himself bob armstrong it, it was really overwhelming i'm not used to that much attention but i could really get used to it after 49 years i thought i had done it all seen it all but I never had a feeling like tonight. Super Studcast number five takes it to a new level. His Bob recalls the Marines being a dancer from six years old, being knocked out, costing Ron the world's heavyweight championship against Ric Flair, training his four sons, and more. The bullet going after that figure four leg lock again. The bullet has the figure four. Brad Armstrong has the sweeper. And it is all but over. For the Tennessee Stud and Robert. The Super Stud Cast consists of two hours nonstop about the chosen topic. And there's a follow-up one-hour rest of the story answering your questions. If you're a true fan of wrestling, old school or new, you owe it to yourself to experience podcasting in its finest form. For less than $1 per hour, these Super Stud Cast are the best entertainment value ever. Ron Fuller, the Tennessee Stud's Super Stud Cast. Find out more at tnstud.com. There you heard it. 
the Super Studcast, of course, always available to you, the listeners of the Studcast, by going to either tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. Only $2.99 gets you access to all of this amazing programming. We'll have a few more words about it at the end of the program. But now, let's return to Australia. You got a heck of a crew there while you're there for this short period of time. Yes. A really heck of a crew, and and I'm young. I'm 23 years old. I, I practically, well, actually, I only know one person in this crew that I have ever met previously, and that is Kevin Sullivan. And he's a youngster, uh, and Kevin and I aren't real good friends at that point. It 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 might be, and now that I'm thinking about it, it, I might not have met Kevin until right then. But this crew has Mark Lewin in it, who is a great worker. Uh, he has a tremendous success uh, during his career. Uh, he's he, And he's kind of a, he's a strange guy. He's a strange guy. Uh, the next one I'm about to speak of is even more strange, King Curtis Aika. And I don't know if you've ever seen King Curtis, but King is, is probably, let's say he's probably 6'4", he's probably 325, maybe 350. He could go 400. I don't know. He's a big son of a gun. And he does interviews. Crazy. He, <laughs> I mean, for me, it's an experience because I, I've just seen Florida and Georgia stuff. And I go there and I remember the first time I watched him do an interview in, in Brisbane. You go to Brisbane once a week. You do three TVs in Brisbane. And in Brisbane, the first time I see him interview... He start, he, and Mark Lewin is on the set with him, and he starts, Mark says, you know, he, he gives him pretty much a normal type of interview. Yeah, we're going to wrestle this king, and we're going to do this king, and we're going to do that king. And what do you think, king? And Curtis goes, and he starts into this, and it's like, what is he doing? And it goes for like two minutes. I mean, he just, it's like, whoa, my gosh, what are they doing here? I was like looking at, you know, I think dad was standing there with me and he'd never seen anything like this either. And he was like, whoa, my goodness. Uh, Georgie Animal Steel is in this crew. I mean, that should give you an idea of what this crew is all about. So you've got Mark Lewin, you've got King Curtis Aika, you've got Georgia Animal Steel, you've got Gary Hart, a young Gary Hart, who is managing a lot of these guys. Uh, you got a guy from Greece named Spiros Arion, great worker. Uh, he's going to be there again when I go back in 73. Mario Milano from Italy, another great worker. Uh you got to, and those guys, and we're talking about interviews here. Those guys did something that I have never seen before or since. They are actually Greek and they're actually Italians. Uh, they start their interview and they speak in English and they get about halfway through and they just turn into, they, they start speaking Greek and Italian. They speak directly to the immigrants of Australia. Australia is kind of a, you know, it's a new country and, and it's a growing country. They have a tremendous influx of, of people from other parts of the world, especially from Greece and from Europe, from Italy. And so uh, Barnett's a sharp guy. He, he realizes 
that a lot of these immigrants can't speak English. They can only speak their native language, and he wants these guys that can speak that native language to talk directly to those people. I thought it was brilliant. After I saw it being done, and I realized when I was riding in cabs and traveling and flying how many people there did not speak English uh, that Gosh, this is pretty brilliant of Barnett to be uh, smart enough to say, I want half of this interview in English and the other half in Greek or Italian or whatever it is. So it made for, I was a learning experience for me at that point too. I was, I watched some of that and I was like, wow, this is pretty amazing. Uh, they had Carl Cox, killer Carl Cox. I mean, Carl is a, he, he's a great worker and a great guy. Uh, the first time I'd ever met him, uh, they had Hans Schroeder. Hans Schroeder, a uh, big old guy. Um, he's going to be there back in 73 when I'm going to go back. They had Steve Ricard there, great worker. Uh, then they had a few Aussies. That, their Aussies, I, I really didn't like the way they handled their Aussies. I, I couldn't figure out why they did not take their Aussies and try to use them to draw the Aussie people. Uh, they the Aussies were mostly job boys. Uh, they had two really good ones there. One guy was named Ron Miller, and the other was named Larry O'Day. They had Johnny Gray as a third Aussie that was there at that point. Uh, Johnny Gray, these guys are all really young. This is 1971. They're very, very young. They're talented. They're good workers, and they are really diggers. They they want to go somewhere. Uh, they want to go somewhere so bad they realize that they don't have much future in Australia because of the way that Barnett is using them. And Dad gets pretty close with Ron Miller and Larry O'Day. And when I go back to Florida, I'm only going to be there for 10 days. When I go back to Florida within two months, Ron Miller and Larry O'Day are wrestling in Florida. He's going to bring those Aussies to Florida, and they're going to do great because people – love that accent uh, and they don't there's no Aussies much there you don't see a bunch of Aussie wrestlers so these are the first two guys that are going to make an impact in America is Ron Miller and Larry O'Day uh, later on after 73 after I go there there's going to be an influx of some bigger ones uh, Johnny Gray's going to come Bill Dundee is going to come George Barnes who in my opinion is the best worker of all of Australia is going to come they're going to come to Memphis and be working in that area so that dad is going to start recruiting he's going to do what he does he's going to watch matches and he's going to see this ron miller and larry o'day and he's going to go geez these guys are pretty darn decent and they're not going to get a shot here they're not going to get used properly and he's going to take those guys out of there and take them to florida which jim barnett has no problem with that he wants them to go somewhere. He can't use them. He can't just beat them to pieces to where they mean nothing. He wants them to get more experience. He's glad and happy to send them to America. It's a great, great deal for Miller and O'Day. And those guys are going to come back to Australia. They are actually going to be the nucleus of the guys that take over when Barnett leaves Australia. They are going to become the head people there. And I don't know how... Whether they buy Jim out when he gets ready to leave and eventually comes into Georgia, I don't know how all that goes down, but I know that those guys 
they get their break by getting to leave Australia, be the first Aussies, basically, to come to America, have an opportunity to get over. They wrestle as a tag team in Florida, and they do great. They really do get over for, for young guys. Uh, so, uh, and just to back up just a little bit, Brian, uh, my dad, my dad, just to give you an idea of what kind of mentality he has, he comes to me one morning when we're there, and he takes the newspaper and he slides it across to me, and he says, uh, look at that article right there. And, and I started reading it, and it's an article about a land sale. In, in the York Peninsula. Now, you know, and I've gone going to Australia. I get myself some books and some magazines, and I try to study a little bit about the geography of the country and what it's all about. And I realized that the York Peninsula is the far northern part, the northeastern part of Australia. It's where you have the crocodiles and, and the great whites and, uh, and uh, you know, the country's full of bad, bad creatures, animals, and 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 uh, snakes and spiders. That they'll all kill you. It's a dangerous place to live. And he says, he says, look how much you can buy that land for in the York Peninsula. And they had a sale on, and there was in paper a million acres for twenty-five cents an acre. Whoa, <laughs> twenty-five cents an acre. Wow. You know, and I was like. I kind of did the math real quick, and I said, he says, you know, he goes, I pay, he said, that's a quarter of a million dollars. He says, I pay in Georgia, I paid uh, to buy the 200 acres. I'll pay that kind of money to buy 200 acres. He says, we can buy a million acres for $250,000. I go, well, how are you going to get there? I said, you know, there's no highways there, Dad. There's no there's no freeways in Australia. There are no highways hardly into the York Peninsula. I said that's just crazy. I mean, what are you going to do with that land? I said, you, what do you got? You going to you going to fight crocs or you got no air conditioning? You got no electricity? I started trying to bring up all the things that you know. How are you going to deal with something like this? But that was his mindset. He he thought big, you know, and he wanted to. He was like, wow, this is great. Gosh, the thing is, I got to own a bunch of land up there in Australia. So anyway, he didn't do it. He never took the deal, but it was just a it was just a pretty good example of what kind of what kind of mindset my dad had. Now you need to go back and see what happened to that land. Was it developed? Did anything ever happen to that land? I'll guarantee you it did. I mean, obviously that country but, you know, that country is very different than our country, and it's very different than a lot of countries in the world. Uh, in fact, I was reading that that 80, almost 90% of everybody that lives in Australia lives on the coast. There's no inland. You don't have big cities in the inland of Australia. And uh, in 71, I don't get to travel a whole lot. I, I'm going to bring up one example of one shot that I did make in a few minutes, but but you have these cities. You've got you've got Sydney and you've got Melbourne, you've got Brisbane, you've got Adelaide, you've got Perth. Uh, they're all on the coastline on different parts of the continent of Australia, but inland there is nothing. The, the, there is no. It's not like our country at all. It's a very dry place that doesn't get rain, and because of that. Three-fourths of the country is inhabitable, 
Uh, you can't grow stuff on it. So it's a it's an odd place and a different type of place to live. So I get the opportunity to work in Brisbane on TV. Uh, this is 1971. And I work, I'm asking in the dressing room, who am I working with? Uh, and they say, you're working with the animal, George Steele. And I was like, you know, I'd seen George uh, I'd, in magazines, but I'd, I'd never met George. And, I, and uh, so, you know, I introduced myself to George and he's kind of a strange dude. He, I, I, every time I, I almost laugh when I think about, you know, his, what type of guy George is. I mean, George is a real, he's a, he's a kind of a nut, you know, and, uh, and I don't know just how big a nut he is until we get in the ring. You know, and, and, and we know we, we, we have a general idea. I mean, he's going to beat me, obviously, you know, and uh, but but he and he's managed by Gary Hart. And so this match starts and I want to lock up with him, but he won't lock up. He, you know, I, I, I try to lock up and he, he acts like he's going to and then he just turns and he walks and he walks and he paces and he paces and he paces and he sticks his head he he puts his neck out and then pulls his head back, back and forth, back and forth. He's like a big duck. He's he looks like a big duck that's walking around the ring, and strutting. And and Hart Gary's out there. And Gary's trying to get him to, you know, come on, come on, hey, come on, George, uh, you know, hook up, hook up, hook up. You know, George don't want to hook up with me. Uh, you know, so George just keeps doing this. Uh, we spend five minutes, literally five minutes, in which I never touch him. We never touch each other. And then I think once we're we're getting real close, now we're going to lock up. I'm really like, wow, we're going to lock up here. And he reaches out and he turns and he goes to the turnbuckle and he starts biting the pad, the turnbuckle pad. He, with his teeth, he, he grabs a mouth. He's, you can see he's pulling at it and pulling at it and pulling at it. And I'm standing like a dummy in the ring. I don't know what to do. I'm young anyway. It's, you know, I've been working six months. I've never seen this before. So he starts and I see he, he rips a hole in the, in the actual, in the turnbuckle pad. And it's got like cotton and little pieces of foam in there and stuff like that to protect you from the actual steel turnbuckle that runs out to the, that holds the ropes. So he starts clawing at that and then biting on that and chewing on that. And then finally he gets it open and then he starts, he puts his fingers inside it and he's throwing it up in the air and he's putting it in his mouth. And I'm like, goodness gracious almighty what is this all about i'm just like i'm totally lost and i'm looking for the referee you know like uh, what do i what do i do you know <laughs> what am i supposed to do while he's doing this and he goes ahead and tears out the the all the padding and all the stuff out of that turnbuckle cover and then he turns and he runs and grabs me and he grabs me by the back of the hair and he runs my head right into the turnbuckle where the pad was. I mean, wham, and it's steel. I was like, oh, my goodness gracious. <laughs> so it was a strange, strange match. It was a it was a really different type of experience for me. Uh, so, you know, had a great group of guys, uh, a great crew. 
And then I don't know what happens in the end of all this. I never am privy to any conversations between my dad and, and Jim. But I do know that I go home after about 10 days, and less than a week later, Dad comes back to America. Uh, at, and it, it doesn't happen. There, there, there must have been a discussion. They were trying to work it out. Uh, I think I, I saw what probably changed Dad's mind about it uh, because the the two or three nights that I did go and work, I watched matches that I. It just wasn't what we did in the South. It was totally different than what we were accustomed to, and certainly what I was accustomed to. There was blood in almost every match. Uh, I saw tag matches there. I saw one in Brisbane in which it was a six-man tag, and all six guys were bleeding. And it was like the every night I went, that was the that was the scenario. Uh, you had the Mark Lewin who really liked that style. Uh, Curtis Haika was so big he couldn't do much wrestling. He had to work that type of style. You had George the Animal Steel. He's going to obviously work that style. So what you had there in Australia in '71 was was a territory. And I, I I don't know really how to put this, but it, it was a territory that it's not headed in the right direction so far as as my experience with wrestling and, and growing up in it and seeing how my grandfather ran his business, now my dad ran his business. This is totally different. I'm coming out of Florida in which there's very little blood ever. And uh these guys wrestle that it's it's all the name of the game is wrestling in Florida. And this is as far away from that as you could possibly get. I felt very uncomfortable being a part of that crew because I was doing it so much different. And, and where I was coming out of Florida and this deep South, it had all this wrestling that w took place in every match and there's no wrestling in those matches. They did not even start out with doing arm drags or doing any type of high spots. They just started out fighting from the very beginning and ended up with the, everybody bleeding. And in my mind, that is kind of the beginning of the end of a wrestling business. When you build your territory around that, you can't follow it. You can't go back to wrestling once you get to that point. And I could see Dad having a change of mind at this point about how this is being done. Uh, we're going to go back in 73. Two years later, we're going to go back to Australia. He is going to get involved with Jim. They're going to become partners in Australia. But Dad's going to have a bigger, uh, bigger hand in picking the talent and then booking and then trying to trying to make it look like American wrestling. And I, th I guess that's the only way I should describe it. You had the Australian style and you have the American style. There's a big disparity between the two of them. And he is going to walk away from Australia in 71, I think because of the way business is being run, the way it's being booked, uh, the, the style of matches that they have. Uh, I think those are the reasons for it. You know, Ron, that's almost a perfect transition into one of the listener-submitted questions this week, so I'm going to go right to that. This question was sent into the show from Sean Cavney. If there was such a thing as the Fuller Welch Pro Wrestling Starter Kit, 
what things would be included? How would you determine that a particular area would work? Starting a territory from scratch or taking over an existing one? So there's a lot there in that question, Ron. Yeah, there is. And that's a great question. I mean, it's very appropriate for what we're discussing here. Great question. Uh, uh, the, the, and there's a lot of different ways you can answer this, obviously, too. Uh, I think he's he's wanting to know basically are you do you are you better off starting with a territory that that's up and operating or or developing your own territory? Well, at this point in wrestling in 1971, there's very few places on the planet that doesn't have wrestling. So you're not really going to go and start your territory from scratch. You're going to if you're going to get into the wrestling profession and you're going to become a promoter and own your own company, you're going to probably buy it from somebody, the rights to, to run that area from somebody. And that's the way I start my first territory in 1974 is I buy it from a guy named John Kazana, Knoxville. It's kind of one town. And I can see that if I get things done properly and get on the right televisions, that I can expand my range. I can expand into the Kentucky and into West Virginia and some states where there's not much wrestling at that time. So, you know, and this, when you, I think that my dad made the determination of about this particular area, this this Australia and how it's being run, the talent that is there, and the style and the operation that they run is so different than what he's accustomed to, and the way he would run that business. He, he, I think that's why he made the decision not to go there. I think that's what you have to do is you've got to make that type of decision. If you're really interested in being a promoter, you're interested in owning your own company and running your own show, so to speak, you've got to make the right decisions as to what kind of matches have they had here for years? What type of wrestlers have they had here for years? Can you present wrestling as the product rather than fighting and, and blood and all that. Uh, in the case of Knoxville, as an example, there was a lot of blood in Knoxville because you had Ron Wright and you had that, that element there. Uh, you had a guy named Whitey Caldwell that he wrestled against. Uh, the chisel was used on many, many Friday nights, I tell you, in Knoxville. And uh, that was some of, of some concern to me. I really did not do my homework before I bought it. I didn't realize probably that that much uh, blood was being was being uh, let there, and uh, and it just uh, I might not have decided to go there if I if I had seen I only saw one television program and I ended up buying the business. Uh, if I had seen more of them, uh, I never went to a live match there. That's just disgusting. I mean, it's pretty hard to believe that I was interested in in spending money to buy something that I knew so little about, but I just had a feel for, for that part of the country and the, and the type of people that live there. And I felt like that I could present them a wrestling product and be able to do good business. And if you build off of a wrestling product, your territory or your business off of wrestling, you're probably going to do well. You're, 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 you're not going to draw the big crowds, uh, the occasional big crowd in which they come to see the blood and they give it to them. Uh, 
But at the same time, you're going to, your business is going to be more solid and it's going to be more consistent. You're not going to have these big shows and then for three weeks you can't draw anything and then you've got another big show and for three weeks you can't draw anything. Uh, that will kill you. You can't survive like that. You have to be building constantly toward a bigger crowd and a bigger audience and reaching different people. So this question here is a great question. I mean... Uh, starting territory from scratch, pretty much not not done and not possible back in 1971. So you take over an existing one, and then you have to really kind of do your research. You're smart to do your research. That's why I think I'm there with my dad in 1971. He's doing his research. He's not going to jump in bed with somebody that uh, that maybe he's not going to want to do business the way he does business. He wanted to go there and see it for himself and uh it certainly wasn't a mistake in our in our case in australia in those days uh the next time we go back in 73 we're going to have a totally different type of crew and there's going to be a whole lot of wrestling involved in it years after you would buy knoxville you had the opportunity to buy into florida and you didn't why uh well i had the i had the offer uh, no one really came to me and said you can buy part of Florida. Uh, Gordon talked to me about it. Gordon and I had several conversations when I had Continental up and it was doing very well in 80, 85, 86, 87. Uh, we, were, we were doing gangbuster business and Florida was dying at that point. Uh, Florida was dying at that point because there were reasons for that, in my opinion. Uh, it It had become... Uh, Dusty was there, and when Dusty was there, Dusty ran the type of business. There was a lot of blood, and uh, and they were I call it hot shotting it. They were hot shotting it week after week after week to keep try to keep drawing, and when you do that and you build your business around that style, it's very hard to to go back to the old days and start all over again and start back with wrestling again. When you had Jack Briscoe there, early seventies. 1971 is an example. Uh, the solid business, it's based on wrestling. Uh, within five years, that business is going to be based upon Dusty in a totally different style. Dusty doesn't have that wrestling ability that Jack Briscoe does. And uh, once they got started in that direction, they got to have people for Dusty to work with. And, and the whole territory started changing. It changed from being a wrestling territory to being a more of a blood territory and more more it just you had to have these angles and these wild things that happen every week to be able to draw and that makes it very difficult. Uh, I tried to explain that to Gordon. Gordon says, "Ron, you got a great crew. You're doing tremendous here. Your your stuff is fabulous. You know, can you come to Florida? Well, you know it." Nobody in the business that owned that business ever called me and asked for that, uh, except for Gordon. Gordon was coming every week doing my show on, on Monday nights in Birmingham and going back and doing their shows on Wednesdays in the Sportatorium. He saw the whole picture and the whole scenario of what was going on. He saw houses dropping when our houses were building, and he, you know, he wanted – Gordon was a part of Florida wrestling. He, in his heart and in his soul, he loved that company, and he saw it kind of 
waning and he saw it starting to fall apart and it hurt him. I could tell. I mean, when I, when we talked about it, it was almost tears in his eyes sometimes. And he was very serious. And he, he, they probably did a three month routine on me in which every Monday night I sat and talked to Gordon about how can I help him? I, I finally said, how can I help you down there, Gordon? How can I do it? it Ron, you just need to come. <laughs> he said, you just need to take it over. You need to be the guy. You need to do what you're doing here, there in Florida. And, uh, you know, and I, and I said, Gordon, I can't do that. Uh, you know, I've got a company here. i got to run what I've got. I can't just, just uh, close up and go to Florida, you know. So it was an odd situation. But uh, this is a great question by by this gentleman here. A really good question. Let me ask you this. How do you recover from a period of hot shotting? It's difficult. I mean, it's really you you – when you're doing it and you're drawing the houses and, and business is really good, you think it will never end. But you have to realize that you, you've got to top yourself. And when you're hot shotting, you got to top what you did last week. And you got to top then what you did, you know, next week. How are you going to draw? How, what do we got to do next week to make it happen? Now, when that's all based on wrestling, it's pretty simple. You just put wrestlers together and you put the matches together and you've got a good solid business based around wrestling. And, and people get into it and they're going to come and they're going to buy the tickets. But when they when you take that wrestling element out and you you start putting that element of of the all these angles and these crazy things that happens and that it, people are bleeding every night, uh, at some point that gets old. And when that gets old, it's hard to go back to wrestling. It's difficult to go back to that that basic wrestling and and make it draw. Uh, and I, I kind of felt that my whole career, I, I wanted to have my company based on a lot of wrestling. I, I, I believed in wrestlers. Uh, when I got in, when, when I was contacted by Adrian street, I, I was like, I saw, he sent me videos. I watched the videos and Adrian street's a pretty far out there character. I mean, you know, he's kind of wild and crazy looking, but I watched his matches and I saw his wrestling background. Uh, I would have never brought him in. I would have not used Adrian if I hadn't have seen that he's wrestling oriented. He comes from wrestling. His basic business and his basic style is wrestling. And he does some pretty phenomenal wrestling moves. He's really good. So you know, that's the kind of judgments I think you have to make when you own a business and you're do you're a promoter. Do I take this guy who doesn't have a, really a wrestling background? He's going to draw me a lot of money, but when he leaves two years or a year from now, am I going to have a stronger business or a weaker business? And I think it's very important when you're sitting in that seat and you've got to you got to be the man to make the decisions that you you make the right decision there. I always lean toward solid wrestling whenever I could. We have one more question here this week, Ron, and it is from Tony Gone. And I hope hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. I'm not exactly sure. It could be Gahan, but I'll go with Tony Gone. And the question is, why is someone in your family not working in the WWE? Someone has to be thinking. Well, you know, that Welch family has had a lot of success. 
that's that's good. Uh, um, well, let's let's uh, let's break it apart here. Uh, uh, someone in in my family has worked in the WWE. Rob worked in the WWE. Uh, they n never used Rob in a way that I thought he could have could have done him more business. He would have been better for them. But Rob was actually offered. Now, I don't know when we did the Super Stud cast on Rob, whether we got into this. I can't remember for sure. But he was offered the book a booking job by Vince. Uh, and Rob's first question is, and Rob being the kind of guy he is, uh, Vince says, you know, I would like to put you, I'd like to make a booker out of you. I'd like to have you help me run business here. And Rob says, okay, yeah. He goes, uh, he goes I'll go back down to Florida. And he goes, I'll call up here and we'll talk about it every day. And I'll tell you what needs to be done. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, yeah. And Vince says, oh, no, no. He goes, uh, you have to move up here. You you got to live here. You got to come to the office every day. And Rob says, oh, wait a minute. He goes, are you serious? He goes, I'm a Southern boy. I think he had this conversation with, with Vince. He told me. He said, I told him. He said, I'm a Southern boy, Vince. He goes, I can't live up here in New York. I can't live in this snow and all this bad weather. I, I got to have some sunshine, you know. Uh, can I just live down there and I'll just send you ideas? And Vince says, no, 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 that won't work. That won't work. So there was an opportunity for Rob to maybe get involved with Vince. And uh, he turned that opportunity down. Uh, and, you know, I, I, and, and, I'm a Southern boy too. I think that was a great opportunity for Rob. I think Rob would have done Vince a tremendous job. Um, I think Vince, one reason his business is where it is and like it is, is because of his, his upbringing. His upbringing is totally different than mine. His daddy, uh, believed in big, huge guys, uh, didn't have to know how to wrestle. Uh, he he wanted size. He wanted these monsters, the the gorilla monsoons, and the, and these big a Hulk and and those big type of guys. Uh, the and he didn't put much emphasis on actually being able to wrestle. And I guess Rob and I come from that Welch family in which you got to be able to shoot, man. You got to know some wrestling, and you got to do more wrestling than anything else in your match. When you're out there, it's got to be a wrestling match. And uh, that really had a big effect, I think, on Vince because he he did not grow up in that atmosphere. Had he grown up in the South, I think the product the WWE has today would be a different product. And I believe that the, the sport itself would be doing even better than what it is doing now. Uh, I think he's, he's hurt things by the direction that he's taken in running his company. And uh, that's just my opinion. But uh, I really believe it's all based on wrestling. It, it always was in my life. It always was in my dad's life. It always was in Roy's life, uh, Herb and all those guys. Wrestling is the name of the game, and when you get long way away from that, you're going to your 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 likelihood of failure is increased dramatically. Well, with that said, 
it's time to give you a few notes here at the end of the program. Of course, if you are on Facebook and you want to be friends with the Tennessee Stud, go to Ron Fuller, the Tennessee Stud. The Ron Fuller Welch Facebook page is full, so you can stop hitting that up. The official page now is Ron Fuller, the Tennessee Stud. And, of course, you can follow the Stud on Instagram and Twitter at Ron Fuller Welch. You can follow me on Twitter at Great Brian Last. If you would like to listen to any of the five Super Stud casts or the rest of the story for each one of those Super Stud casts, go to tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. For only $2.99, get three hours of additional history on top of the regular Studcast on each topic. The rest of the Bob Armstrong Super Studcast will debut on Tuesday, May 29th. You can hear me each week on the 605 Super Podcast at 605pod.com or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. What do we have coming up next week on the Studcast, Ron? Well, we're going to go back to America. We're, we're going to leave. It's a short trip to Australia. It's the first time. We're going to go back to Australia again, uh, 73, down the road. We're going to spend a considerable length of time there. And uh, that, for me, is the where where the stories are going to come. Uh, gosh almighty. We're going to have great. Those will be fabulous as compared to this short trip that we make in 71. We're going to go back to Florida. and uh, And in Florida... I've, I'm going to be now in a in a series of special stipulation matches with Ronnie Garvin and a couple of other guys. It's going to give me a chance to a real break at getting some experience at a very early age, working with good guys and working these programs that are based around uh, different types of matches, one after another after another. Uh, that is very interesting for me. I think fans will really enjoy that uh, and. And uh, I'm kind of like uh, in the same time frame toward the end of this next episode. Uh, I'm kind of like the movie The Godfather. I'm going to get an offer I can't refuse. It's going to come pretty soon here, and it's going to change my life. It's going to it's going to put me in the direction I'm going to have for the rest of my career. Uh, and I won't get into that opportunity right now. But we're going back to Florida, and we're going to. Gosh, that's, that territory is just going to start to crank up. Uh, we're going to see a lot of different talent coming through there. And I'm going to have the opportunity to work with some of the best all, of all time. That's right. Always leave the gun, take the cannolis. But we'll have more on that next week, Ron. For the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller, I'm the great Ryan Last. We return to the Sunshine State next week. Thanks for joining us today for this historic studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. One, two, three. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains.